So hey, everybody, thank you for joining our Breach of the Week show. Um, I'm Joel De La Garza here with Jeff Belknap, the CISO at LinkedIn. And this is our show where we talk about the last week's security breaches, snafus, and try to find a way to make things better. Yeah, let's give it a shot. <laughs> let's at least not make it worse. I think we can kind of commit to doing that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Agree to try. Possibly. Agree to try. Absolutely. Great. So I think this week's the big news was um, the breach that happened to Ubiquity. Uh, Ubiquity, obviously, for, for most folks on the phone, if they don't know, is a, is a massive provider of, of network equipment. Uh, typically, you see them being used by, I'd say, prosumers, um, people that want to build, you know, really comprehensive networks uh, at their homes, or perhaps even in small to medium-sized businesses. They have you know, hundreds of thousands of devices deployed. They are a publicly traded company. Um, and I, I have to admit, I do own some ubiquity equipment. So I, I have uh, I have been a fan for a while. Um, and so this week, um, we actually heard a story from Brian Krebs uh, about a whistleblower coming forward. So for folks who don't know, ubiquity had a security breach. Um, Jeff, help me out here. I think it was, was it a few months ago, maybe two months ago, three months ago? I want ago? to say it was... Three months ago, actually, I will tell you, uh, January 11th is when I got my account notification because I, too, also own Ubiquity products. Oh, congratulations. Awesome. So we are all mourning uh, the same loss, which is great. So, so yeah, they had a breach. They sent us a notification. Um, the notification basically said, hey, we had a breach. Um, don't really understand the full extent of it. I guess it's kind of how I would paraphrase it. Uh, and then... Um, you know, reset your passwords, uh, you know, reset authentication equipment on your uh, authentication configurations on your equipment and and go on your merry way. And so I think um, I know, uh, Jeff, a lot of us are as his exhibitors by you and, and, and I are, are ubiquity users. And uh, I think we all had a little bit of moment of existential dread when we got that notification. <laughs> yeah, I think I think collectively and I think ubiquity is very popular uh, in the tech heavy set because there were a lot of CISOs that. I talked to that day where we all got the email and went, oh, crap, uh, and then went about changing our passwords uh, and then gossiped about what possibly could have gone wrong. Absolutely. And, you know, the I guess the one positive thing was that in the old days, we'd probably have to run home to do it. So at least this way we were already there. Right. So, <laughs> Hey, the power of the cloud. Absolutely. Um, and so so Brian Krebs actually published an article this week that was pretty good. Um, he, he generally has some pretty interesting insights into security. Um, I'll just I'll just grab a couple sources or a couple sentences here that I'll, I'll read for the folks just to get set some context, because um, I think it's actually really interesting. So so he published this article, basically a whistleblower from inside the company had come forward. Uh, and, and the way he described it was that a, a source who participated in the response to the breach alleges that Ubiquity massively downplayed a catastrophic incident to minimize the hit to its stock price and that a third-party cloud provider claim was a fabrication. Ubiquity said it became aware of unauthorized access to our information technology systems hosted by a third cloud party provider. Um, this is Amazon. Uh, Adam, this is the name, the pseudonym that's been given to the whistleblower said that the attacker had access to privileged credentials that were previously stored in the last pass account of a Ubiquity IT employee, which gave them root administrator access to all Ubiquity AWS accounts, including S3 buckets, application logs, databases, et cetera. Um, and then when security engineers removed the back door in the first week of January, right around the time that we were about to get our uh, 
notifications, the intruders actually sent a ransom demand to Ubiquity saying that for 50 Bitcoins, uh, about $2.8 million, uh, they would uh, remain quiet about the breach. So essentially asking for them to commit some form of cover-up. Um, they actually sent proof uh, that they had Ubiquity source code and pledged uh, they had pledged to kind of come back and get them because they had planted multiple sort of um, backdoor accounts. So that's that's a pretty pretty big bombshell uh, to be coming from a whistleblower. Um, I, I guess it, it took me a little bit of time to kind of churn through this, but I think starting from the, the perspective that the credentials came from LastPass, which means that we had probably single factor protection on a number of different resources, that's, that's obviously not a good thing. Um, but just, I think this kind of, Jeff, it, you know, it sort of frames the discussion we had when Joe Sullivan joined us a while back about the right way to kind of describe a breach. And I'm just kind of, I'd love to get your take first before we get into the whistleblower discussion. Like Ubiquity issued a pretty standard breach disclosure, um, probably could find some of the same verbiage in other companies. Uh, and technically it's correct. Um, was their announcement enough? Yeah, I think, I, you know, I struggle with this and, I, and I'll preface this all by saying the whole point of having this conversation and, and really of having this show is to destigmatize breaches to the point where we can we can sort of analyze what what should this look like like was this a good one was this a bad one what what you know what should other organizations do when they inevitably deal with a breach and i think in this case i give ubiquity some points here in that they send a notification out i think some of the some of the reporting says it was within days and and that's very much to your credit uh, if if you're a breached organization I, I do think um, what could have been better here uh, is, you know, an initial notification that, uh, that gives you some very specific information uh, that tells you, you know, that, that is at least honest with you about what we know or don't know and what you should do, if anything, at this point. I think you have to send an initial notification. And certainly, I think you sort of ethically, you're in the right to send an initial notification as soon as you have something that is actionable to your end users. Um, and I think legally, depending on your regulatory, uh, whatever your regulatory encumberments are, you, you have to do it fairly quickly. In this case, though, I'm a little disappointed that, um, you know, this notification that came out, it, it's very thin. Uh, and I, I also am disappointed that the first line of the notification immediately does some subtle blame shifting to this mysterious third-party cloud provider, which I think uh, is a little disingenuous because framing AWS, your, in, your infrastructure as service provider, as a third-party cloud provider uh, and sort of doing it in a way that implies, oh, th those guys got breached, not us, I, you know, not a, not a great way to start. I think that's uh, that's something I would not do or not recommend, but I think it was great. Like they told you what they know. We were not aware of any evidence. We, you know, we think this might've happened. We don't, we don't know, but as precaution, you should do this. I think that's a great place to start, but I think you have to follow that up with more detail. Yeah. And I don't think absolutely. that happened here. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that's, I think, you know, has having been through probably tens of thousands of breaches in my life, it's always, it's always really hard in that first message to strike the balance. Um, in providing enough information so that people can know what's going on, but not providing enough information for people to needlessly panic, right? <laughs> and that's and that, and that's always sort of the, yeah. the 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 sleight of hand there. And 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 then you know you factor into this like in, in the old days, right? Like 
you didn't even make a breach notification because there was no legal requirement. Um, and then over time, now as we've got 48 different requirements across the states, and then we've got international regulations, and you know, you've got you know Singapore kind of out at the front with a requirement for like 12-hour notifications after a breach. Um, you know, it, it's really hard to know kind of the right message to go to to, to market with or to go to your customers with before before you actually really have any context on it. Yeah, but I think you can. You really can never go wrong uh, going going as quickly as you can out to your customers. I think having been on the other side of this, uh, and, and certainly having been involved in these conversations before, you you have to balance that. Like, you can't go out to your customers if you have nothing to tell them in terms of what you know. What do they need to do, or what do they need to know? It it's great if you can go out and tell them all all good. You don't have to do anything. Don't sweat it. But that's rarely the case, and it's. Definitely never the case that you know within 24 or 72 hours that there's no there's no need to worry. I think everyone yeah. hopes that there's no need to worry, but certainly that's rarely the case. Do you think we need to get to a point where there's some kind of like um, like you know taxonomy for how we make breach disclosure announcements? It's like like it, it feels like there should be kind of like a breach disclosure generator. It's just like you know credentials were lost. Click here. Uh, which was authentication material impacted? Click here. Was there a remote code execution? Click here. And then you kind of get like a template that sort of outlines at a very high level sort of the the, the, the situation. Yeah, I mean it's it's funny to think about that, but the reality is you know privacy notifications uh, are fairly templated, and you have to in many jurisdictions you have to register ahead of time with this is the sample notification we will use because the regulators want to see that you're you're going to send a sufficient notification. You're not going to pull shenanigans, sort of like trying to make it look like nothing happened when it did. So I think there's yeah. certainly like, there are uh, definitely a collection of patterns and dark patterns that could be used here. And I think one of the things that would be great, not that I'm a big fan of extra regulation, but one of the things that would be great is like, hey, there should be a standard set of things you can say or not say in these things. But I think the downside of that is you don't want to you don't want to turn into a legal form letter. Yeah. You you want to encourage people to share uh, share what they know uh, and be a little uh, well. I was going to say a little creative, uh, but good creative, not bad creative. Well, yeah, and I, I think the thing that was particularly interesting, and so we can, I, I think the, the whistleblower dimension kind of adds like a whole other layer for, for discussing. And I think the the first. The first step of that, uh, at least from my perspective, is sort of the, the whistleblower. And obviously, we can't discern their intentions. We don't know who they are, and, and that's the way the process has to work um, and, and should work. But like the whistleblower basically calls out that it was the company's desire to preserve their stock price. Um, and that was sort of what caused them to kind of generate this sort of legalese-type response. Um, but you know, it's 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 interesting that that was the claim, and obviously we don't know what happened inside of the company because it's it is as a public company an SEC requirement that, that, that Ubiquity immediately disclosed the breach or within whatever time frame that they set for that. So it was it seems to be a very interesting tension, right? That like that like you you have this publicly traded company that's obviously being driven by lawyers and compliance and sort of like an obligation to their shareholders, um, and then the claim that like there's this other kind of thing that's happening, this other machination behind the scene. Yeah, man, I I struggle with this uh, with this chunk of reporting. I think partially because, you know, no amount of tech reporting can ever tell the full story. But the other, you know, the thing that really sort of triggers me here is that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of 
sort of implication that, uh, that the whistleblower knows why the company did one thing or another or their intent. And I think, you know, companies aren't solo entities. Like, there are a lot of people that are involved in breaches. There's, in, there's counsel. There's outside counsel. There's, a, you know, you've got experts. And, you know, much like the security of an organization is the sum of all the choices that you make, a breach and the outcomes and the communications of that are the sum of all the choices that you make based on limited information that you have at the time. And, uh, man, you know, having sat on the other side of, you know, there, there being uh, problems to deal with and communicate with customers about, it, I, I can't help but imagine in the back of my mind that it would be very chilling and hard for me to get through some of those if I knew uh, that somebody was immediately going to go out publicly and say, well, Jeff made this decision in, in bad faith or in, in a bad faith decision. I think that's something we all have to live with. But I think it's really presumptive for the, you know, this whistleblower to, to say why they made those decisions. I think you, know, you, mm -hmm. you assume the company is going to try to preserve the company. That's very normal. But I think this is a case where I think two things are happening. One, you've got somebody who was involved in the uh, in the response, which sounds to me like an outside uh, an outside consultant or an expert. And uh, and generally, when you hire those people, like there are NDAs uh, and that they're breaching, so this person must feel uh, enough like the the breach was not handled well enough that they they need to go report it. But I, I can't help but take this with a big, big grain of salt, because if you've ever watched a breach unfold on the inside, you know, you know it doesn't go very well. It's not like you can sit down at a table and look at all the information and make a really well-informed decision about what to do next. Yeah, yeah, your, your house is literally on fire. <laughs> and so you're running around trying not to go up in flames with the house. And so, yeah, yeah. Me, me, rational, rational response and considerations often fall on the wayside. Yeah. And I think, I think when you're making decisions with limited information, it can to a third party or an outsider or somebody who's not at, in that room uh, having that discussion, I think it's really easy to feel like maybe they didn't make the right decision. Uh, and I think even when you're sitting at that table, it's easy for you to go, I don't know if this is the right decision, but we're we're going to go with what we've got. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and like there, there is this element of like, I, I don't know, I mean, to, to specifically call out in the public reporting to the to the media about sort of the, the desire to preserve the price of the stock. Right. Like, obviously, that's going to make sure that the coverage has a certain tone, um, like just the, the yeah. headline in, in the headline in and of itself is kind of like fundamentally questioning the, the 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 valuation of that stock. And if you actually look back, right, the story came out on Wednesday, like there was a non-trivial drop in Ubiquity stock. Like it shaved off a considerable amount of market cap. Um, yeah, there's, there's no there's, once once you go public that you've had a breach, there's no saving the stock at that point. The market's going to react however it reacts. You can't, you know, there's no amount of uh, wordsmithing you're going to put in a breach notification where the market's going to be like, oh, this is fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's interesting is that back in January, if you actually pull up their, their you know, as the breach disclosures went out uh, and people started to talk about it in the media, um, you know, and the, and the investors kind of responded to it, like their stock was relatively unimpacted. Like there was some some downward movement, like not too bad. And then and then it kind of was fine. But like with the publication of this story, like there's been a significant drop. Like it just seems like if you were to try to <laughs> it's it just it's just a really interesting set of co coincidences that I don't want to spin off into conspiracy theory world, but uh, <laughs> it's always That's, interesting when you see these stories pop up and like you know the, the the one thing they don't want to have happen, and it just seems like it's engineered to make that one thing happen, right? 
Yeah, and and I gotta I gotta say I really feel for the ubiquity security and legal teams that are now going like, great, uh, and and I'm sure like three months after your breach, you're still working on long term remediations and uh, and trying to, you know, re course correct the ship so that you don't have this happen again. And this is definitely something that's very distracting from the hard work of making sure that you can succeed uh, following a breach. Because, I mean, the one thing that I've learned, and I know I know a lot of people, I'm sure, Joel, you feel this way, is like a breach is an amazing opportunity to learn and change the organization and change how you do things, because now you've experienced the worst that can happen, and you can grow from that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's the time when you want to have kind of a, a, a fully blame-free reassessment of of all the things that you're doing, right? Like it's it's sort of the 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 bring out your dead moment um, to to, yeah. to to steal a Monty Python bit, right? But it's the bring out your dead moment for like your entire program and your entire company, and it's usually when you can come back stronger. Um, but the, the the interesting thing here too is is sort of the the claim, and and I know you've you've taken one company public and you've worked at several other public companies. And so you've probably either helped set up or administered kind of whistleblower programs um, as have I. And like, it's, it's interesting if this breach happened in January and the, the reporting says that the, the disgruntled employer, the, the concerned employee, I should say, um, you know, reported it to the internal whistleblowing process uh, within the company, right. Which, which all public companies have to have. Um, and then also went to the media. So it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting, just based on the way that like whistleblowing programs work, that that would be kind of the order of operations. And well, then yeah, obviously, we, we don't know the details, but you know. yeah, this is the thing that I've been trying to read between the lines. Like, was this an employee who reported it internally uh, and then was ignored? Because it, while it says they reported it to the whistleblower hotline, um, they don't make it clear whether they're actually an employee. Because it, in fact, they use very specific language: a security professional at Ubiquity. Um, and maybe I read that as an employee. I think certainly if I reported something to the whistleblower hotline uh, and got blown off, I think you know reporting it to the authorities and then considering going public is not out of the question. Wouldn't be my first, wouldn't be the way I choose to go. But, uh, but I think, you know, again, I think we just have to go back to it's really unclear, you know, what are the set of circumstances that led this person to make these choices to write a letter to the European Data Protection Supervisor and and then contact uh, the media. Yeah, and also interesting that they chose to kind of reach out to the to the EU DPA, right? That's a that's kind of a kind of an interesting choice as well. Um, I guess probably because there's no you know corollary in the U.S. Yeah, I think. Well, I I think that's Maybe right. The SEC. Uh, <laughs> right. There's there's no corollary, and uh, and I think this this whistleblower's concern seems to be centered around uh, the the data that was put at risk. Uh, although I feel uh, again, I sort of struggle with the you know customer data was at risk. Like, well, sure, it was a breach. It was at risk. Whether it was actually compromised is a really important detail uh, about whether you know there need to be data protection actions against the company. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, so that's that, 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 that's all that, that's 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 very true. And I think you know the the funny thing is is that in reading this article, um, kind of I'll say it first pass before thinking on it. Like I think having done security for as long as as I have, and obviously you know you, you, we're we're about equal in in terms of that that length of time. I don't want to put either of us on the spot for, for a 
long we've been doing this, but, but I'd say like, you know, the, I think we've all felt kind of that security angst, right? Like it's, it's actually, and this is kind of the point that really jumped out at me. Um, like it's, it's really hard to build a, an angst and like nihilism free security team, right? Like it's just, it's just something that happens in, in, in larger organizations, um, as they grow and develop. And there's always in with security people, there's always sort of like a, a Pollyanna, like, you know, we're, we're telling you what's wrong and you won't listen. And now it got you right. It's, it's, it's sort of the, the Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park kind of, kind of moment. Um, and, and I guess that, that sort of leads out on the, the, the final thing that I'm thinking through. And this is, or, this is maybe where, where we can try to add some value is like, so like, it's clear that the way Ubiquity handled this, it was predominantly driven by legal and, and business requirements, right? And and they were making the right decisions for their shareholders and their customers, and um, that's a complex process, and we talked about that up top. But, like, I mean, there there is some evolution that has, has to happen within the business to kind of build a culture there. Um, and, and that's sort of like the, the how do you actually get businesses on board with this with, without, to your point, without just passing more regulations? Yeah, I think, well, I, I know, uh, you know, when I when I joined as the CISO at Slack, it was uh, between a year and 18 months after Slack's breach. And the, the leadership team there had really done a great job of internalizing that, you know, this this is a security is important. It's not only a differentiator to the business, but it can also imperil all the hard work uh, that everyone has put into it. So I think that's, you know, that's obviously not the the first choice. Don't don't initiate a breach. But I think if you have a breach, you can leverage that uh, to really talk about in, in, you know, in detail what happened, what you could do about it, you know, what what controls can be changed and, you know, how that's positive for the business. If you haven't had a breach, first of all, pat yourself on the back, but also don't get too confident. Uh, but if you haven't had a breach, I think it's really important to take a moment and either use one of the examples that's in the press that's less, less hyperbolic. I actually think the ubiquity example is a really good one to spend a little time with your board uh, and, and talk about, because there's some great examples here of, you know, you, you can have these discussions about whether, you know, the notification was enough. What would you do if there was a whistleblower? Like what what kind of controls could you put in place? What sort of investments can you put into the business? And how do you think about security, either as a differentiator or as a uh, as a uh, downside minimizer? But you know, using events like this to uh, to learn and to grow as a leadership team and as a board are really a fantastic opportunity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's I think it's somewhat as we end our show. Um, and we kind of we kind of put the bow on this discussion, right? It it just seems to come back to um, corporate governance, right? Like it's and 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 I guess it's you know having having started you know secu- this, the, there was no such thing as a CISO twenty years ago, right? Like this is all relatively new stuff, um, and it's just it's I guess it's good that kind of like we're 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 closing that loop and coming back to saying like you know what security needs to have a seat at the table. It needs to be part of corporate governance, right? Like there, yeah. it, it needs, it needs to be more than just a, a, a quarterly item at, at the audit committee, right? Like it, it's gotta be that kind of board level visibility and it's gotta drive a culture from the top. Yeah. And it's, it's gotta stop. You have to stop thinking about security as it plus uh, this really is a significant part of your business and, and we should be treating it that way. And I think for the most part, like that's, that's where we are going. That's where the industry is going. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Well, great. This has been this has been awesome. I know we're gonna. I think I think for the folks that are listening, I think we're gonna be opening an after party. Is that correct, Jeff? We're gonna. Yeah, let's do an after party. Questions? Awesome. Let's do some so, questions. So I will wrap up this um, room, and then we'll start a new room. Jeff, do you want to take the lead on that, and then we'll be there to open it up and take some questions. If that sounds good, I will. I will go push buttons, and we'll see everybody on the flip side. Awesome. You're better at pushing buttons than I am. So thank you so much. And thanks everyone for joining. Have a, have a wonderful week and see you, see you really soon. See you next week.